I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are... $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. And on freedom's side, for there can be no peace Check this out. Alexa, play the infamous String Dusters. Here's some music by the infamous String Dusters on Amazon Music. You hear that banjo in the background? That's what we're going to focus on today. When you find out a fly fishing professional banjo player is coming to town, you reach out for a podcast interview. I really wanted to record this podcast on the stage of the anthem at the wharf in Washington, D.C. However, COVID rules and keeping the band safe prevented that. Instead, we planned on fishing together before the show and recording live on the water. Bad weather prevented that. In lieu of recording on the water, we are going to record over the internet. Chris is the banjo player for the Grammy award-winning Infamous String Dusters. They have a new album out titled Toward the Fray. I tracked down Chris to learn about his life and work ethic as a professional musician, podcaster, and angler. We discuss DIY carp fishing, muddler minnows, life on the road, conservation, and finding shoes on the water when fishing. I have a friend that flies F-16s and he thinks a cooler job would be being a professional musician. 
We've got Chris with us today from the infamous String Dusters. How do you pronounce your last name? Pandolfi. All right. And you are the banjo player. That's correct. All right. Where are you currently? Currently at home in Denver, Colorado. Any specific neighborhood of Denver? I live sort of in South Denver in a, in a little spot called Harvey Park and uh, kind of off South Federal. Okay. It's been a while since I've been in Denver. And did you grow up there? Are you a native? Do you have that native sticker on your car? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm from the Northeast. I grew up in the Northeast, went to college there, and then I moved um, down to Nashville, Tennessee, where the String Dusters got our start. And then eventually, once, you know, we, we were established as a band and could live anywhere we wanted to, I migrated out here for a lot of reasons, the music scene, but also the fishing, the skiing, and, and all the cool outdoor opportunities drew me out here as well. What's your local fly shop? I love a spot called Cutthroat Anglers that's in Silverthorne, Colorado. I, I head out there to fish a lot. And there's a great spot here in Denver called Discount Fishing Tackle that I yes. love. Yeah, I've gone through their sail bins for an hour before. Yeah, they're I driver's license there once too, and I couldn't buy beer for a week. They're they're great guys over there, really helpful, and they just have more gear packed into this tiny shop than about any place I've ever seen. Is there still a rusty, oily cardboard box full of just miscellaneous reel pieces? You know, there probably is. I'm not familiar with that particular box, but knowing that shop, they've probably got something like that going on. Yeah. Uh, that place was really cool. All right. So what is a string duster? A string duster is a member of the string dusters, I guess. You know, that name came from banjo legend Ben Eldridge and his son, Chris Eldridge, was my roommate for years in Nashville. He's a member of a band called the Punch Brothers. Ben Eldridge is was a member of the seldom seen legendary bluegrass yeah. group. Grew up listening to them. Yeah, Ben was the one who who named us the String Dusters or who, who gave us that suggestion. And the infamous part was added because there already was a String Dusters out there. And so when we were signing our first record deal with Sugar Hill Records, we needed to have that name free and clear to be our name and our name alone. And so the infamous String Dusters was born. Sort of like Blink-182. There was a blank band called Blink, and they just put a number on the end of theirs? I guess sort of like Blink-182 then, yeah. yes. So tell us, what exactly is a banjo? Maybe there's not music aficionados, or maybe someone lives in Denmark or Alice Springs, Australia, and they just don't know this musical instrument. Well, the banjo originated in Africa, and actually on my podcast, which is called Inside the Musician's Brain, I've got uh, a, a big banjo-centric episode. It's episode 22, and the guest is banjo legend Bela Fleck from Bela Fleck and the Flecktones and assorted other projects. And I kind of get into the whole history of the instrument. It came over in the slave trade from Africa, and it was a gourd instrument, and then ultimately evolved sort of with Appalachian influences and and found its way into originally like Dixieland and jazz. And then we start to see 
a more modern iteration of the instrument that's similar to banjo that you would see now. And the gourd was replaced with a, a wooden rim and a, a head, a plastic or hide head stretched over that. And the playing style evolved also. And then when the late great Earl Scruggs came along, he evolved this amazing style of playing with three picks on your right hand. And we refer to that as Scruggs style. Exactly. And, and that's, that's what I do. That's what most bluegrass players do. And banjo really found a home in bluegrass and in recent years in the hands of guys like Bela Fleck, it has really journeyed into all sorts of other genres and the banjo is like cool now <laughs> bluegrass when we were starting out was you know it wasn't as hip as it is these days and 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 now it's just having this amazing boom in popularity and you see bluegrass festivals and bluegrass bands popping all over and you also see like i said the banjo migrating to other musical styles there's cultural things now that are accepted that when we were kids was silly and funny we used to make fun of bluegrass as hillbilly music exactly sushi was this weird thing and yoga and now that's all things my generation made fun of 30 40 years ago that we're all into now i love sushi i love yoga and i love banjo all cool these days have you ever heard of we saw them playing boulder once on the street cletus and the barn burners i have heard of them i haven't seen that name in a long time but it, it has certainly popped up on my radar screen a few times as we've been touring and making the rounds but it's been a while i regret not buying their cd on the spot when they were selling Yeah, they were a cool band yeah so when did you get into the banjo was that your first instrument or did something lead you into that I took piano lessons as a kid, and my grandmother, who grew up with us, was a professional musician. She was an opera musician, and music was all around, but when I was in high school, through my older brother, who was a musician, I discovered Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, and that really introduced me to the banjo. I started playing when I was 18 years old, and I actually got my first banjo right when I graduated from high school. I moved out to Montana to work as a fly fishing guide on a ranch outside Livingston, the 63 ranch. And during that summer, I just fell in love with playing and the instrument and kind of the rest is history. I went off to college and I had thought for a while that I wanted to, you know, be an outfitter or be a guide and changed course and really got deep into music. And then I went on to do grad school for music. And, and obviously, you know, the string dusters started up not long after that. And so the direction of things changed and music became my profession and fishing, mostly fly fishing became a, a big passion for me and remains something that I am super interested in fishing conservation and something that I have made a lot of time for over the years. And now, as I get a little older and the band gets a little more established and, you know, we're not dirt poor like you are when you start just about any band, you know, I've had some great opportunities on our travels to fish in lots of cool and unique places. Of course, it's brought me in contact with lots of cool people as well. And it's just something that has remained a huge part of my life. Fishing. No, let's do some musician professional musician talk and then we'll go into some more uh fishing so banjo cool. and the fly rods 
Napster, do you miss it? Was Napster good for you back in the day? <laughs> That's a big question. That's a whole podcast episode in and of itself. You know, Napster really kicked off the streaming era. And I think for a lot of bands that existed for more years before that change came, it really presented a problem for them because they had structured their careers and had decided how to use their time based on what the business model was around music and recorded music was really a big source of profit. And with streaming, that went away. Now it's coming around again, slowly but surely. And people, I think established bands, established acts are starting to make money off of streaming. But you know, I was never necessarily a big Napster guy. I mean, I I do use streaming services like everyone else, but I wouldn't say that I miss it. You know, it's just a fact of life for us now. And we have to structure our business, you know, in, in the same way that anyone else does. We just survey the landscape of what opportunities are out there. And we make most of our money touring and, and playing shows and traveling. And the recorded music part is still a very big and central piece. It's just, it's, it's role in your career has changed, if that makes sense. Absolutely. What's the deal with people yelling out Freebird? <laughs> you know, Freebird is, is the, the number one request the world over. And I don't exactly know why, but I've definitely heard Freebird yelled out at a number of shows Freebird, Stairway to Heaven, heaven these sort of ubiquitous requests that people want to hear, but not, not a request that we've ever fulfilled. Do you have a favorite venue? You guys just played the anthem in D.C., which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, the anthem is, that was the first time we'd been there, and the anthem is up there. It's a really special place. I love Red Rocks here in Colorado. That is an unbelievable venue worth the price of admission. And then there are a few clubs across the country that have a lot of history, like the Fillmore out in San Francisco, where the Grateful Dead played a bunch of times. We've played a bunch of shows there. And it's like every time you step into the venue, you can just feel that presence. And that brings a lot of energy to the music. And, you know, same is true at Red Rocks. And then you've got some of these amazing newer venues like the Anthem, the Mission here in Denver, which is pretty new. And it's always great to play at a room like that where the venue is actually part of the draw too. People look to go to these places to see shows. So yeah, we've been lucky to play at a lot of great spots in our years of touring. And you can fish right outside the front door of the Anthem. There's going to be snakehead you and largemouth. Yeah, you can, you can fish outside the Anthem. I don't know that most people would look to do that. And I hope that we get to connect to, to make an opportunity like that happen in the future because you know, I'm a fly fisherman, but I I don't consider myself a purist. I love it all. I love all sorts of different types of fishing and different environments, different tackle, different gear. I just, I love learning how people, you know, approach the challenge of catching fish in, in new and different and weird places. And I'm, I'm going to, you're going to have to show me what fishing outside the anthem is like one of these days. Absolutely. We'll get a falafel and then go fish and then go to see Todd at Tiki TNT and get some coconut rum. I'm in. That coconut rum is really good. <laughs>
Do you have favorite outside venues besides maybe amphitheaters? You ever get to play like old fashioned where you guys are, people are stomping on boards and dancing? You know, Red Rocks is, a, is an outdoor venue that I love. There's a spot in, in Wilmington, North Carolina called the Greenfield Lake Amphitheater that is amazing. And our guy, Bo, at the Penguin, the, the radio station there in Wilmington, they've been big supporters of the Dusters for years. That's a really cool one. I mean, festivals, you know, are all at outdoor venues and they are a huge part of our touring schedule, a huge part of our travels, our career. So there, there are lots of them. And especially now, as of the last few years, with this crazy pandemic upon us, you know, playing outdoors has been part of the solution, I would say, because those gigs oftentimes are a lot more feasible given the current circumstances. So we've, we've played it at many amazing outdoor spots. You guys need to play Wolf Trap out here. Yeah, I know. I know Wolf Trap and we've never played there, but I've seen some music there and it's a really, really cool spot. Yeah. I grew up there as a kid, just falling asleep on the blanket on the hill before nice. the main acts even came out. Nice. It was a good time. What's up with people wearing the band shirt to the show? Is that, is that okay? Cause back in the nineties, there was the movie PCU and he tells the guy not to wear the band shirt to the, don't be that the, guy. Yes. Well, I even I have don't be that guy on my question list. <laughs> I think it's okay. I think it's okay to wear the band shirt. You know, if you're if putting your fandom on display, there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm pretty sure that I've been that guy a, a time or two in the recent past. So I'm going to say yes, acceptable. Sometimes you don't have anywhere to put your shirt. You just got to put it on when you buy it. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Where else are you going to put it? And your band photographers into fish, his logo is a trout. Yeah. Trent, our, our, our guy who's been, he actually just recently started with us. He's a big fisherman and we got out on, on a tour last fall and we hit pleasure park on the Gunnison river on a day off. We were out in grand junction. We drove a few hours over to pleasure park and we had our nymph rigs on and we caught some, some really great trout that day. Anything interesting on your rider? Man, local fishing know, license already printed out for you. <laughs> yeah. You know, our rider is pretty tame these days. I got to say one, one thing about our band, you know, there, one thing that I love about our band and, and a real strong common thread is just, there's just a really deep focus on, on the music, you know? So we don't have any, any crazy requests We're we're, I would say pretty, PG rated as a group. And, um, you know, we try to keep it healthy on the road and we want to be doing this for many years. So our rider is like organic raw cashews and things like that, 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 that are not, uh, maybe not the sexiest, but, but like I said, we're just trying to achieve longevity as a group. And that's, that's part of, uh, of how we're trying to do that. Salted or unsalted cashews. You know, I prefer salted. I think I think on the rider we go raw. Well, you're gonna be sweating out there anyway. You're losing all sorts of fluids and so. <laughs> right, so when you guys write your music, uh, who who writes lyrics? Who writes music? And and how do things get influenced? Do you have any fishing, travel stuff in your works? You know, we we all write music, and 
one of the cool things that we figured out to do as a band is share all of our writing credits. So the songs that go on a string dusters record, even if they originated primarily with one guy, we share the credits on those. And we do that because, you know, there are so many things that go into making a band go and so many things that you spend your time on. And that's just one small piece of it that is sort of rewarded disproportionately as far as income goes compared to the rest of those things. So we collect songs when we're getting ready to do new album. That's when we really learn a lot of new material and we bring all these songs together and they're, they're usually mostly written and that would include music and lyrics, but we make some tweaks and sometimes a couple of guys will get to get, get together to co-write a song and originate you know, the, the, the music and lyrical ideas together. And then we bring it to the band. It goes through a whole other process of arranging. And that's when something really becomes quintessentially string duster. We figure out different parts to play on our instruments and different ways to bring the music to life and, and all focused on, you know, how does it all best serve the song? So when we're doing a new album, that's when we get an infusion of new material and we work on it first individually and then as a group, and then we go into the studio and we bring it to life. Do you have any favorite cover songs to jam out to other than Freebird? <laughs> well, covers, you know, it's a big part of, of the music scene that we're in, you know, bands that are touring, playing a hundred shows a year, you know, you gotta have variety. And it's also great, especially for the uninitiated ears, to play something that they know there's that expression, you know, play something that I know so I can tell if you're any good or not. And we, we, we mix it up, but we've got, we've got uh, a great new cover of the grateful dead's touch of gray that I've really been digging, which interesting one to, to play. Yeah. Not we've got a, the fan we've favorite. got a bunch, we got a bunch of dead covers, but that that's a really cool and unique song. And it's actually really, complicated it's got a ton of chords and goes to a, a lot of different places but we worked that up i think last year and it's 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 becoming a staple the fans love it and it's really really fun to play you look back at that era and you're like how did they let jerry look so unhealthy for so long well <laughs> sadly uh, you know i think i i think that they did as much as they could to try and bring him around. And, you know, it's just the, the sad truth of the Grateful Dead. They sort of collapsed under the weight of, of all that attention and all those expectations. And if you listen to Jerry in interviews, you know, he talks about how he never wanted to be this idol to so many. And that's what he became. You know, he was the heartbeat of the Grateful Dead, and some people, you know, face problems, addiction, things like that, that, that ultimately went out. And sadly, in Jerry's case, that was the deal. You know, we're just grateful that we got so much great music out of him before he, before he passed on in 95. And they have been such a mega influence on us and just about anyone around our scene. I mean, they changed every aspect of the game from the music to the business and they will always be one of the most influential bands of all time. Have you been able to collaborate with any of them? We have, we've played with Phil Lesh, the bass player a bunch of times. He's got, he had this great venue called Terrapin Crossroads out in Marin. And I think they're in the process of finding a new home for Terrapin. 
but we've played there with Phil a bunch of times. We've played with his son, Graham, who has a great band called he was Midnight North. My, he was in my cousin's baseball team when they were kids, Little League. Graham was? Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah, Graham's awesome. Midnight North is great. Phil is is so cool. And, you know, he is still killing it after all these years. He's, you know, still does Phil and Friends. We, Well, I think the coolest time we ever played with Phil was we did Phil and Friends, which is sort of his thing that he's evolved post Grateful Dead at a big festival in Virginia called Lockin. And it was the Dusters and Joe Russo on drums from Joe Russo's Almost Dead and also Paige and Fishman from Fish and Derek Trucks and Susan Tedeschi sat in and um, Anders Osborne was also playing guitar. And that was a very memorable show. Phil's plane got canceled. They chartered a private flight for him and they have this big rotating stage at Lockin. So we're on the back of the rotating stage facing backstage waiting for Phil. He's way late. We're 20 minutes late going on. Police escort rolls in. Phil gets out of the car, gets up on stage, plays a few notes on the bass, boom, 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 you know, tests his sound. And then all of a sudden we're rotating out to a crowd of like 30,000 people just minutes after he rolled on site. And, you know, the, the canon of Grateful Dead songs is, is just so, so deep. And we played some, some really cool ones that night. But yeah, we, we've been lucky to hang and play with Phil and, and hear firsthand from him some of the lore around the Grateful Dead. And it's, it's just as mind-blowing as you could possibly imagine. That's awesome. All right, I want to transition into fishing now, but we have to slowly transition. Is there a confluence, for a better term, of, of banjo playing and fishing? Are there things that a banjo player, professional musician, and a fly fisherman have in common? You know, there. I have some. I have. I have some great friends in the bluegrass world. Some of whom are banjo players who are also very into fishing. I don't necessarily know what, what the intersection is. I mean, there's definitely a common thread as far as the attention to detail. Both are sort of a science in their own way. And that's probably something that, that I'm attracted to. And, you know, for me though, fishing was something that I discovered when I was really, really young. It was something that I, I did with my dad from a very young age. He, you know, we learned how to fly fish in the Northeast and he showed us the ropes and learned how to fish, learned how to tie. And, you know, it was like a really simple style of fly fishing back then would use one dry fly, no, no dropper, no nymph rigs. We just kept it really, really simple. And, you know, the, the scope of that has evolved since I moved out here to Colorado, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure if there's any definitive intersection, but there are a lot of people who do both. Do you ever pick music venues based on fishing locations and hatches? Um, I can't say that I do, although there are there are gigs and venues and places that that we go that definitely open doors. And, you know, when I see them on the schedule, I think, oh, I should I should stick around in that spot for a day or two and and see if I can connect with someone who can show me where to catch some fish and and that that has been a theme and that's really how 
you know, I got into um, spay fishing for steelhead a few, probably six, seven years ago. And we play a lot up in the Northeast and I've made some great friends and made some great connections and, and been able to explore this whole other area of fishing that I've really fallen in love with. And that had a lot to do with, with the band traveling and playing a lot in that neck of the woods. For those West coast steelhead anglers that say, Oh, the great lake steelhead aren't real, but there's now an increasing salinity in Lake Michigan due to all the snow on the roads. So it's becoming saltier and saltier each winter. So if they say you're not a steelhead unless you touch salt water, well, I guess they're <laughs> there you go. Yeah. What about carrying gear on the bus? You've got that hatch underneath where you can store waders, boots. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got it. You know, I, for years I, I had a four piece six weight that went everywhere with me. And now I'm, I'm a little more selective. And also as we evolve as a band, the show and the uh the the day leading up to it just kind of takes more energy than ever before just because the shows are bigger they demand more prep and 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 more sort of focus and attention so some of the priorities have shifted but i like i said you know on on the tour last fall when we had a day off in grand junction i got out and and got some trout fishing in and that is certainly not uncommon do you have a fly box that holds stuff that you can use anywhere minimalize the space on the bus you know, I'll, I'll, I'll mix it up and I'll put together a little, a little fly box that's specific to somewhere that, that we're going depending. Oh my God. I've got so many fly boxes these days. It's just like, it's a mess in there. I was, I was trying to organize my, my fly tying stuff a couple of days ago because I'm getting ready to go on a bone fishing trip in the Bahamas in May to a spot called Mars Bay on South Andros. I'm so excited about this because I've caught some bonefish, but I just am really, really fascinated with saltwater fly fishing these days. So I was going through my fly tying stuff and it it's just amazing how the gear piles up over time. Yeah, I can see, I can see you've got quite a setup there. But yeah, you know, it, it's, it, um, you, you probably do the same thing. I'm always sort of shifting and reorganizing and, and, and getting things focused on a specific trip or a specific location. And that's just always kind of a work in progress. Yeah, right now I'm just focused on tying shad flies, I'm trying to do about 75 a day just to fill boxes to sell. Oh man. And what, yeah. what kind of flies are those? This is what I'm working on now. It's uh pink bead. Go. Korean scrub yarn, and then what is that? Clear stretch cord from the Walmart and Flashaboo. Yeah, that's that's not on that, that's not too unlike the uh, the bonefish flies that I'm getting ready to tie. They're different color, but like the the gotcha and the mantis shrimp. You know, they they have like the the bead chain eyes and a, yeah. a sparse body and a little flashy tail. These I sold. These are for uh, one of the Orvis stores. I sold a bunch of these to a bonefish guide. There I didn't go. know at the time he was one of the most world famous dudes in the world of bone fishing. There you go. Yeah. What are your local fisheries? You got South Platte. Have you done Cheeseman? Cause that's on my list. I still have never done Cheeseman. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've done Cheeseman many times. If you can catch a trout in Cheeseman Canyon, you can catch a trout about anywhere, you know, and the pressure that they get in there is, is pretty serious, especially on a weekend. And now with the pandemic, so many more people have gotten into and taken up fly fishing. I don't go to Cheeseman a ton anymore. I do make my way west into the mountains and have a few buddies, my buddies, Creston and Ryan, who I fish with all the time. And we do the upper Colorado. 
We do the lower blue. The lower blue has been a real go-to in, in recent years because there's a long private stretch that you can only access okay. if, you float, if you float through it. Yeah, Jurassic is very cool. Um, and I've my always, latest... I've always wanted to fish the water going into Green Mountain Reservoir. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the headwaters of it. Yeah, I've I've checked that out. There's so much great water in out in central Colorado. I mean, there's just so much trout water. But my latest thing that I'm into is fishing for carp here in Denver. And I, I got into this last summer, and those things are not easy to catch. And you know, they're just so so spooky. And you can find them in ponds all over the place. But I think later today I'm going to go down to the to the South Platte and just poke around and, and see what I can see. That's one of the cool things about it. I can leave an eight weight in my car and anytime I'm driving around Denver and I, I see some water, I'll just get out and look and see what I see. And, and, and sometimes, you know, I, I love DIY fishing and when you can really just figure it out yourself and carp has become popular here, but it's, it's, it's still kind of a, a cult thing. And, and I'm, you know, I've got, a, a basic setup, but figuring out where the fish are and, and how they feed and how to catch them is, is still a work in progress. I've, you know, I've, I've had a few on, but, um, I've broken, I broke off a really big, I mean, they get up 20 plus pounds, you know, and they're super strong, but they're super spooky and hard to catch. So, you know, it's the, it's, they call it the freshwater, freshwater bonefish and, and and i've you know i've just like really gotten into the idea that you can catch these huge fish on big saltwater rods like right here in downtown denver i'll fish right in the shadow of the broncos stadium you know that's a great spot there's some uh bums up there that give some pretty good advice oh yeah they'll, they'll, they'll give you advice on what flies you're using i was like how do you know this <laughs> I, was like, I see people here all the time i was just standing there under one of the bridges at 70 and like Dudes were like, you tried a pheasant tail yet? What about a glow bug? You know, so climate? so were you were you fishing at the time? Yeah, it was mm, around Mardi Gras, so this time of year, and it was cold, probably 20 degrees. I just wanted to check it out before I headed up to Summit County. Uh, yeah, there were and did you did you catch anything? No, I had some good sight casting spots, had a couple chances, but nothing. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, I mean sight casting in a in a river right in downtown for these huge fish that some people sort of consider you know not something that you would go out and fish for i just love all those weird elements you know for me that's part of the draw yeah, you would have loved four mile run there would have and been, that's that's by the anthem there in dc it's a, almost directly across the river on the virginia yeah. shoreline and yeah. there's tilapia there's goldfish there's trout yeah i want to check that know. out yeah i'm gonna there's a boat ramp going down there and I finally decided I'm going to borrow my neighbor's chainsaw to trim the trees along it and get my boat go. in. There you Otherwise go. I have to put in up on the top of the airport and then go all the way around national airport up into this Creek. It's like 30 minute one way trip. So they're also going to dredge it. So maybe when they do that, they're going to cut trees back on the ramp. It's well, I want to, I, I want to get in on that next time we come through town. Yeah. And then shad fishing. That's the greatest late April, early May up here. And what's that game all about? Just they're all migrating up river spawning and they're going to attack anything they think is interfering with their spawning or eating the eggs. So they've got it. 
they bite at minnows because there's so many minnows up there yeah. eating their eggs. And I mean, you'll foul hook shiners all day long. And yeah, you just put something bright and colorful in front of them. They're going to bite it. Cool. And it Very can be cool. one cast after another. You can do two flies at once and catch two fish that go in two different directions. You'll hook into things you can't even land. You just, it's crazy. It's absolutely, there are thousands of fish swimming at your feet in wow. crystal clear water. How cool. I got to check yeah, that out. I absolutely love it. It's, it's magic. It should be happening. So I think the boat tail grackles should arrive here in about two weeks and then the herring and then the spring run should start. There we go. Yeah. I usually love see it. the herring in the outflow at the okay. sewage treatment plant at four mile because they always they have like to the go warm up. water. Well, they're that, and they just try to go up the outflow thinking it's the next access to oh, upwater to spawn. Right, right. So when you start seeing dead herring on the sides of the outflow and they just flop out, you know things are. And then you start seeing gotcha. the ospreys and then the cormorants because they're all following the migration up the Atlantic seaboard, all the wintering ospreys. There's yeah. so many ospreys around here. It's crazy. Cool. Okay. Do you ever go up into Wyoming to fish? Yeah, I've I've done some great fishing in Wyoming. I, I did a backpacking trip in the Wind River Range. That was some of the best trout fishing I've ever had in my life. That was years ago. And we play some festivals up there. And uh, we play at a, a spot called Grand Targi. And I've done some some fishing when we've been there for that. It's been it's been a minute, but I have plans this summer to head up to Montana to visit with my buddy Sean from a great band called the Kitchen Dwellers and hit some of the rivers outside Bozeman. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, but I got to make it back to Wyoming one of these days for sure. There's some great fishing there as well. Speaking of other bands, you know about this band Goose? Oh, yeah. I know all Goose. My, I've All my brother talks about, man, Goose this. I got my Goose tickets. Goose Miss was canceled. Yeah, Goose oh is hot. I, I had those guys on on my podcast, Inside the Musician's Brain, last season, and they have a great thing going on. You know, they're a relatively new act, but people are really taking note, and they put on an amazing show. Definitely worth checking out. That's what he says. My neighbor Jimbo, big fan of the Goose. Jimbo's nice. a big jam band fan. There you go. Well, you got to make sure he knows about the String Dusters and comes and checks us out. Absolutely. Um. Are you on any pro staffs, either music or fishing? Are they like, man, we're going to bro staff this guy out with three finger picks? Oh, yeah. Yeah. For in the banjo world, you know, uh, over the years have developed a lot of connections. And, you know, I, the, the banjos that I play primarily are old vintage Gibsons from the 30s. But the, um, the finger, I use finger picks that are made by a guy named Dean Hoffmeyer. And the, the thumb pick is, is blue chip thumb picks. They're awesome. And um, the pickup is made by EMG and the armrest made by Banjo Lit. So these are like new, newer companies that are all sort of sponsors. But I'm actually, I have Orvis as an official sponsor for my podcast this season. And they, I've known the guys at Orvis for a long time and have been up to visit the factory in Vermont. And they're just an awesome company and their hydros rods are killer. So, you know, I, I pitch it to them because there's a lot of intersection between our fans and the outdoor world. So 
they have gotten behind my pod and we're we're working on some some conservation stuff surrounding like snake river dam removal up in the northwest and 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 um you know sort of tying in trout unlimited i've been a trout unlimited member for years but but i'm definitely definitely team orvis i i i love the people and i love the gear do you ever have people maybe from the local shop come out set up a table where you're playing that's not information haven't done that. Like I said, I, 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 I know the people who work at cutthroat a little better and they're definitely big music fans and big, big supporters, but haven't had that happen just yet. Just to spread news, hand out pamphlets about dams and conservation. You know, I'm working on, on a lot of that. Like I said, through my podcast, we have done some conservation based stuff with American rivers and we we've, We've done some stuff with Trout Unlimited and trying again just to sort of take advantage of this intersection between music fans and people who love the outdoors and people who care about conservation. There's a lot of overlap there. When you pick up a banjo for the first time, is it sort of as awkward as the first time you pick up a rod you've never cast and that they both have a feel to them and you've got to learn their character and dynamics in order to use them most efficiently? Yeah. Similar, similar thing. You know, I, I feel like I've been fishing since I was a, a, a little kid. And so picking up a fly rod, you know, to me is like really second nature. Now I've been playing banjo for 20 plus years. So that's really second nature as well. Fishing definitely has been around longer and, you know, I, I, Again, I, I I try not to, or I'm I'm not really a, a purist. You know, I love to make it work with any kind of weird gear, and you know, it, it's sort of a similar thing with music. I've got a recording studio here at my home, and I've got all kinds of weird instruments in there that I collect, not just the vintage banjos, but lots of weird keyboards and synthesizers and stringed instruments, and they've all got their own character and th- their own kind of mojo. You got to sort of get used to it and, and, and become one with this thing before you can express yourself. And it's sort of a similar thing with, with a fly rod, you know, or any fishing rod, you know, it, it takes a little, a little time to acclimate, but then, you know, you got to sort of become one with it and that's how you get results. Do your bandmates management, et cetera, ever worry about you out on fishing adventures where you're going to get a hook through your thumb or trip and break a hand, jam a finger? No, they've, they, they, they know that I can, that I can take care of myself. We've done some big fishing adventures together. We floated the middle fork of the salmon as a band twice. Some of the best dry fly trout fish, trout fishing in the world. So they've, they've all had a taste of it as well. You know, I, I think as, as activities go, it's relatively low risk. So that the worry factor also remains low. All right. What are you know, your bandmates into? Are they go to museums? Are you out looking for good food? What are they going to do while you're out fishing around a, a concert? Both of those are definitely in play. We, when we were in DC, we, we hit the uh, Smithsonian and the national gallery, which was great. Forget about just the amazing museum resources there in DC. It's incredible. Good food is always a priority on the road. And, you know, we all have our, our different forms of adventure that we seek out. And there are a couple of guys who will come along on a fishing adventure every now and then. But these days when we're on tour, like I said, it's pretty focused on the music and business. 
it's a business and the show really requires a lot of attention and energy. So that that's, that's the main thing that we focus on these days. Do you still get goosebumps when you walk out on stage? Oh yeah, for sure. I don't think that'll ever, I don't think that'll ever get old. That's gotta be a really cool feeling to be on stage. It is, it, you know, and it, it feels different ways, different times and managing that and, and becoming accustomed to that and channeling that energy, you know, that's as big a part of the challenge of being a professional music musician as the playing music part is, you know, you spend all this time learning how to play an instrument, perfecting your craft, but then it's a whole other craft to take that and put it on display on stage. So so yeah, that that's like a lifelong work in progress, just like learning music is. And some days you you do better at it than others, but you just always try to learn and progress and do better than the day before. When you're on stage in an outdoor venue, do you ever see your bandmates swatting at bugs that are there for the lights? You're like, dude, that's a size 18 caddis, man. Watch out. <laughs> Be careful. You're like a I little can't... 12 blooming olive land on your banjo. I can't say that I've ever noticed that. But I'll keep an eye out for it in the future. I'm always looking at lights at night wherever I go. Yeah. Always- yeah. I, 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 I do remember a few shows where there have been an inordinate amount of bugs. But, you know, the lights that we use, they, they come on and off. And a lot of them are like deep colors. So it's not necessarily the white light that's going to attract bugs. If someone you know, goes after a blue wing olive, I'm going to sound the alarm. Yeah. When we were in Nashville, seeing that football stadium on the water, you got to imagine they just get a huge amount of bugs from the river at those lights at night. Probably so. I know what you're talking about. I, I, I lived in Nashville for years and it, it all sort of comes together there downtown, but haven't witnessed that one firsthand. Did you have a favorite hot chicken place? Mine closed. Prince's. Prince's. Princess was the was the OG, and I, I mean that was like before the hot chicken boom. And we went to Princess a handful of times, and you had to make sure that you had the rest of the day off, but it was yeah. worth it. Yeah, we've got a new place called Hangry Joe's out here. It's Korean Nashville chicken. I got the mild, and I took one bite, and I was like, "This is just bad news." <laughs> well, Princess, I've never had anything quite as hot as Princess. And I think the rumor was that they didn't change the, you know, they didn't change the the oil or the grease for years. That was just like their thing, you know, but now that's really caught on. And I, I if I remember correctly, like in Nashville, Princess was one of the places where that whole thing started. Yeah. And then I saw a drift boat in a parking lot on my way there. We stayed in East Nashville, sort of where the the bar was destroyed by the tornado recently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a nice bar, too. I didn't some kind of orange blossom beer there. That was fantastic. Yeah. That tornado. Wow. That was just, that was just insane. You know, when I was in Nashville, I didn't do a ton of fishing. I just was, it was so early in our career and, you know, we, we were just like eating PB and J three meals a day. And I, I didn't have a lot of resources at the time, but there are also, you know, there are some really cool fishing opportunities around there. It just wasn't something that I explored and it really came back into my life in a major way when I moved out here to Colorado about eight years ago. Was the Colorado move just based on that chill Western lifestyle and fishing and ski access? That was a big part of it, but the music scene out here is also phenomenal. And I would say that for the type of music that we play, that this is really home base out here. This is, this is where there are more fans and more venues 
than just about any other city. So in terms of work on the side, I work as a producer and do some recording and, you know, special guests with other bands. There probably are more opportunities here in Denver than there are anywhere else. So you're not looking to move to like Columbus where Jerry from OAR lives? Uh, hadn't planned on moving to Columbus where Jerry from OAR lives, but... Like uh, all places. You, you went back to Ohio, <laughs> dude. Yeah, Denver, man. I've, I did my first trip to Colorado in 94. It's like it, it is the exact opposite of Washington D.C. Just oh yeah, laid back, uh, just conservative way you dress and your hair, and you don't go out. You don't see a lot of you know, like nose rings and colored hair and free spirited people around here. Yeah, Denver's a great place to be. I mean, especially here, sort of within the confines of the city. You know, people are very open-minded. They they love a good lifestyle. And so there's just like all kinds of great opportunities to get outside, great food, some great museums here in, in Denver. I've really fallen in love with it out here. It's an awesome place to live. Green chili or red chili? Green. All right. Do you put honey on your pizza crust? No, sir. Okay. I'm trying to think of some other things. It's been years since I went out. My buddy Justin lives in Manitou Springs. Okay. So I was out visiting him last time. I only went through Denver. We, we went to some awesome, it's like an old airplane hangar looking thing somewhere in, in north of Denver. And it was like a bunch of little cafes and bakeries built into it. A little market. Like a food hall or something. Yeah. That they're, they're getting really, really popular out here right now. You see a bunch of those popping up. We have the Korean food halls. We can go get like poke and like, yep. You can get a bibimbap cheesesteak. So they'll take Korean and then do the fusion with it. And it used to be Kmart. And these two brothers were like, let's just call it the block and we'll just open up a bunch of food halls. And it's insane. And that's in DC, North Virginia, Annandale. So, okay, two okay. miles that way behind you as the screen is, it's a completely Korean na- like neighborhood. Everything is Korean. There's Korean just signs on everything, doctors and sure. 24-hour restaurants where you can just go get some of the craziest meals. The karaoke places are nuts. Yeah, where I'm at on, on, on South Federal, there's all kinds of great ethnic restaurants. We've got like a hundred pho restaurants in a in a you know two-mile stretch on stretch on South Federal. And I take advantage of that a lot. Really good so stuff. So filling, just sloshes around in your belly. <laughs> I've, I haven't gone out for fun in a while we still haven't really found one in this neighborhood that i like well if, if you're looking for fuss south federal by the intersection with 285 that's where you that's where you should head how far are you from tipsies i don't know because i'm not sure what what is tipsies the booze store about the size of a bass pro shops it looks like bass pro shops oh. on the outside <laughs> I'm not much of a drinker anymore, so I probably would not be going there. But I used to love going there. It is a massive booze store called Tipsy. Nice. I don't I don't know Tipsy's, but I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I'd go there for the the beer. We got Pliny the Elder there once. I've never seen that anywhere else. Nice. Yeah. Do you take advantage of all the good beer, Odell's? I've been drinking since I was 16. I don't think they want that publicized, but. I like, yeah, there's so many, so many breweries out here, but Odell, I really like, they have a beer called 90 shilling that I really like. Scottish style. 
Um, 90 shilling is like an amber ale and, and it's just Odell's one that, one that stands out, you know, like I say, amongst a huge field of, of breweries, there's just so much craft beer out here. Um, but Hey, we're lucky to have that. Absolutely. We have a new one called bunny man brewing down the street. People keep stealing their sign. The bunny man is the legend of a guy who chopped up his family with an ax in Northern Virginia, where I grew up in Reston. Way Whoa. back in the day. But then there's another Bunny Man story about a guy in a bunny costume throwing hatchets at cars. So people can look up the two different varieties, but the rest in Bunny Man is the official one. So we have Bunny Man Brewing. Good to know. Yes. It's down by Target, where my kid wants to go every day. I heard <laughs> jam. Your friends just want to go to Target and walk around. It's raining and cold. Why not? Is that what is that what you do these days if you're a kid? Check out Target. Yeah, they sell these dinosaur masks. You put them on and the, the mouth opens and they paint them and they decorate them. And she's always in here taking feathers and beads. And <laughs> I bet. took I bet. a whole tan zonker hide with her last night and glued <laughs> it on. She found out that glue gun glue when it comes out is very hot. She found that out the hard way. And then she got a hold of somebody 10 years ago, sent me a bag of trout beads. And I'm never going to use them. I just have them. So she saw that and started gluing them to the outside and they all broke off. There are two dozen trout beads all over the floor upstairs. <laughs> and in with everything. A new use for the trout bead. Oh my goodness. Yeah. She keeps using the kitchen table as her crafting place. And I'm like, no. <laughs> we got Target or five and below. She likes to go there. They've got good fly time material there. If you need squirmy material squirmy wormies you can get yeah. all sorts of stuff at five and below interesting i'll have to check that out yes yeah uh so you did the south Platte. do you ever go up and down to different locations you mainly fish the denver area there's so many different branches of that river yeah yeah there are mostly mostly in in denver i've been checking it out you know like i'm in south denver and i'll go up north of town and like i said I just leave an eight weight in my car and when I'm near the river, a lot of times I'll just pull over and take a look and see what's going on. And I don't even necessarily know what I'm looking for. And that's, like I said, that's one of the really cool things I love about fishing is just figuring out a new thing for yourself and, and, and really digging into that DIY aspect. And, you know, there's all these ways that you can like add a, a layer of interest to the game, you know, like tying your own flies that sort of like takes it up a notch, you know, but figuring out, something from the ground up that's that's a real draw so i'm i'm always exploring and checking it out and you know i've I, like i said i've fished cheesemen and deckers for sure a handful of times but these days my my attention is on the south Platte here in town how far do you have to drive for a happy spot for you to fish five minutes that's awesome yeah five i i for a while and you can't do this in the winter because the ponds all freeze but I was checking out a lot, you know, my first sort of go-to for the carp was just looking in ponds and I'd, I'd look on Google maps. And if I was like running errands or driving around Denver, I'd stop and check out some different spots and totally DIY. And then one of the first times I was looking in the South Platte, I found this sort of back channel and I saw carp in there. And so I sort of followed that and it led to this pond that was probably, you know, it's, it's not that big. You can, you can walk around the whole thing in, in 10 minutes. And I saw carp in there and 
no one else fishing. And this was in this very random kind of industrial spot. And that is about probably five minutes from my house. So, you know, it's fun to have a, a fishing option that doesn't take all day. You know, I can drive down there and look around and make some casts and be home in less than an hour, which is cool. We have no carp spots around here. They're not in the creeks. I can't find them in any real lakes, ponds. Huh. There's six little ponds around here, right by Target and Bunny Man. I've never seen one. Yeah, they, you know, they're invasive. And I, I don't know exactly why they land the place in the places that they do. But boy, we've got a ton of them out here in Colorado. And and like I've got a buddy, you know, uh, who lives in Salt Lake City who I met through Instagram, which, you know, has been a game changer for fishing and just exposing people to different varieties of fishing in different places. And they've got a ton of fish out there west on I-70 Grand Junction has a ton of carp, Salt Lake City. So there are a lot, a lot of spots out here. And and it's 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 a really fun and different game and something that I'm I'm looking to, you know, to get more into in in the coming years. Do you use that tight line European nymphing styles at all out west? Euro nymphing, you know, I I think sort of a hybrid. I mean, I, I don't typically do the kind of like high sticking thing where you're, you're, you know, your rod tip is literally right over where the fish are. I mean, you can't always get into that kind of a spot, but when, when I can, you know, nymphing is a really interesting thing. I, I, I didn't know much about it before I moved out here to Colorado and I'd go with, with people who were really experienced fishermen and really knew their, their way around the nymph rig and I'd fish a spot and catch nothing and they jump in and they'd be on fish right away. And it's really technical controlling the depth, controlling the speed, the presentation, you know, once you get good at it, you can really be productive. And that's kind of what that Euro nymphing thing is all about. Just like a very pristine presentation, but it also requires, uh, you know, certain sort of um, different types of tackle and, you know, they don't really, I don't think they really use an indicator when they go Euro nymphing. They're just feeling the fly all the way through the run and maybe watching like part of the fly line or where the fly line meets the leader as an indicator. But, you know, I, like I said, I'm up for anything and I'll, I'll, I'll try anything, but learning the, the nymph game has really been a big part of fishing for trout out here. And oftentimes it's the most productive way to go. And I love fishing dry flies, tie a lot of streamers and will sometimes try that first. And then if nothing's working, you know, you, you put on a big heavy nymph rig and you get down to where the fish are, they're a little more lethargic and it just always seems to produce results. What are some of your favorite flies for the Denver area? Well, let's see, uh, you know, the, the carp flies are these little sort of shrimpy looking like beadhead nymphs that you just kind of sink down to the bottom and you got to kind of put right in the, in the fish's way. But when I'm out trout fishing, I love, I use, uh, I use like black and red copper johns a lot as my lead fly pheasant tail nymphs, you know, a lot of midges obviously, but I'm a huge muddler minnow guy. Like if I had to have one fly that, you know, I've just, I've used that fly for everything from, you know, steelhead to trout. I've used it in saltwater and caught snook on a big weighted muddler. It's just like a great catch all kind of minnow looking streamer. So that's definitely 
one of my go-tos and I've started tying them on bigger hooks and I'll do actually a big spin of deer hair, like back on the hook, not just like where you'd put the head. Normally I'll do a big spin back by the tail just to fill out the profile of the body. And then I'll wind my thread and, and gold body and weight in front of that. And then another big couple spins of deer hair near the head to, to tie the traditional, you know, front of the fly there, but yeah, muddler is, is definitely one of my, my desert Island flies. And you have all that deer hair tying technique down something I've never played with. Yeah. That's one thing that I'm, that, that I've gotten really good at. And, um, I have, uh, a few friends who are hunters who send me hair and deer hair, you know, you really have to have, the right deer hair. You really have to have the big hollow hair that I think comes like more from like underneath the, the deer's body, like the belly where it's just like thicker and rougher. And if you have that right deer hair spinning becomes really, really easy. Like you just get one wrap around it and it puffs right up. And, you know, you see those amazing bass flies, all those multicolored layers of deer hair. It's really predicated on having the right hair. So I've I have a stash here that I don't know if I'll ever run out of, of just really good, um, thick, hollow deer hair, which is also, you know, buoyant. So like for a muddler, that's not ideal. So I always weight those flies and I use, when I go steelhead fishing, I pretty much always fish with a little black and purple muddler that I tie with a little bit of weight on the body. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's just been a, a really great fly for me. And that's, you know, one tying technique that I've definitely got down. It's all about having confidence in the fly. You got the confidence that that's right. You got the mojo to do it. That's it. it that's, that's what it's all about. See, I only do one streamer for trout, my bacon fly. I just sold three today. They're, they're back what is that, here. What is that all about? Oh, let's open one up. It's just a giant meaty. Oh, there you creamer. go. Yeah. So I'm using see any big rooster tails out. I use huge rooster tails for the hackle, mm-hmm. zonker for the tail. It's just big and meaty and it pushes water. Yeah. It doesn't look, it look- anything like it does when it's wet, like it does when it's dry. I've caught yeah. nine inch trout, I've caught 30 inch trout, and I'm convinced I don't need any other streamer for trout. Yeah. It's like you say, it's all about the mojo. It's all about the confidence in the fly. That's such a big, big part of the game. And, you know, you could spend a whole day fishing and if you don't think you're going to catch anything, it can be a really kind of boring day, but you can spend a whole day fishing. And if you, you know, you get one hit or you're really confident in the water, like the experience takes on a whole different character. And a lot of that is centered around just your confidence in, in what you've got on. Are there any flies you're embarrassed to fish? You just won't fish something that's just not your style. You know, there's not, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed by anything. I'm not above any style of fishing. And in fact, one of the reasons I'm going out for carp today is because I'm really interested in this game. And I just think it's really cool that you can catch these huge fish on a fly rod right in downtown, but they are so spooky and it's so hard to get them to take a fly. So I've evolved a little like almost bait rig that I'm putting on my, my fly line, you know, that like the, the, the spin 
fishermen use for carp where, and I've been studying this rig and different versions of it. And typically they'd have like your, you know, your line would go to a weight and then the weight sits on the bottom. And then from the weight, you've got a few inches of either, um, you know, heavy fly line or even like wire with the coating pulled back. And on that, that goes to a knotless hook or a knot, a knotless knot on a, on a hook, a smaller hook that doesn't have a very long shank. And then off the back of that is like a little piece of bait or corn or whatever they will eat. And then integrated by the bait is something that makes it float. So the weight is sitting on the bottom and then popping up from that is something that the carp will eat and they swim along and they're, they're just looking down, you know, you see them tailing when they're eating. So you know, don't tell my purest friends, but I'm, I'm going out there to see if I can make up a rig that you can cast that, you know, holds up to a little bit of false casting, but that also is just something that these carp are more apt to eat. Now I have to figure out exactly what that bait will be. I've got a few things to try, but you know, I'm just trying to see if I can find a more productive way to get these fish on the end of my line. And that's not to say that I will give up the nymphing game, but especially like in the winter, when they're less apt to move and get a fly, you know, anything that will get you ahead of the game, something because carp have a very sensitive mouth and sense of smell. So if they're drawn to something they're, you know, I think they're going to be much more likely to, to eat it, getting them to take a fly is like, you really need, a, you know, you, you need to not spook the fish. You need to cast it in the perfect spot, you know, six inches too close and it will spook them six inches too far and they'll change their path and they'll never come upon it. But the times that I have gotten them to take a fly, it's just like, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of luck involved. And those are some really spooky, sensitive fish. So I'm going to go out there and see if I can't, um, tie up a rig that, you know, some, some may say that that's cheating or not the way it's done. I don't care. I just love to try weird, you know, new and, and different stuff and see if I can get results. With all this urban fishing, do you ever find things that you're a little surprised to see in a river? There are definitely some weird things coming down the South Platte. I mean, it literally goes right through downtown and I haven't been out for a while. I, since it got cold, I haven't really been out carp fishing, but the last time I was out there, fishing under one of the bridges right by Bronco stadium. I saw uh, like the biggest sneaker that I had ever seen in my life. This thing must've been like a size 20 just sitting in the water right off the bank. But there's a, there's a, there's a ton of weird stuff coming through the South Platte. And, and again, that's just like part of the draw for me. You know, I, I love to, I love to get into weird spots and see what I can figure out. Footwear is a very common item to find when fishing. For sure. I don't understand. There's the always river will take shoes. your shoes. I understand flip-flops. They pop off and they float, but man, I'm shoes all the time. I've noticed that as well. Out where I grew up, everyone just takes off their shoes and leaves them on shore to go paddle boarding. And then people just go home without their shoes. You get there in the morning, there's three <laughs> pair. Just people forget. Don't forget your shoes, yeah. folks. Yeah, Scott Weiland from... Stone Temple Pilots once yelled at, a, yelled at a kid at a concert they played. The kid threw a shoe on stage. Like, you, don't, you don't waste <laughs> don't your do shoes. Don't do that either. <laughs> and your mom worked hard to pay for those shoes. You just threw it up on stage? Don't throw stuff at the band, guys. Yeah, no I mean, one, I saw... No one likes that. 
marshmallows at dead shows. And then Bruce Hornsby was getting pelted with marshmallows. And he just get us like, what are you doing? Look. Yeah. Forget requests, things people want you to take home with you, fan stuff. Oh, yeah. You got you got some some gifts on stage, some of which we can talk about on this show, some of which we can't. Yeah, we have awesome fans, you know, and and especially these days with the big pause that we've all had from live music, I feel like there's more gratitude than ever. But yeah, we've had a few we've had a few weird things show up on stage over the years for sure. Do people still scramble for the set list? Oh yeah, absolutely. We've got a few sitting on the stage and 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 you know, by the time we've walked off, they're all gone usually. Do you guys plan out your set list? You just you don't do it the same one each night, do you? Do you want to No, no. Eat? No, we do a very very different set list every night. We will never play the same song two nights in a row and oftentimes we'll go like through a long weekend, three four shows without doing any repeats and that's just kind of what our fans have come to expect. And yeah, I make the set list every night and we have a production meeting about 75 minutes before we hit the stage and we talk through the whole show and any new material that we're doing, transitions, anything that's unique to that night. But we put a lot of work into that. And like I said, that, you know, for our business, the live show is the thing. It's the main thing we do. It's the main moneymaker. So it gets a lot of the attention. Last week episode was Matthew Capucci, meteorologist. So I was telling him five fishermen, limited movies, river runs through it, catch and release Uh, for him, like Twister and day after tomorrow as musicians, you guys have like almost famous other are there movies that are just go-to musician movies at your industry? Oh, there's one that tops them all. Spinal Tap? Spinal Tap. You nailed it. I should mean, be, I should have thought of that already. Spinal Tap is just, I mean, it's one of the best movies of all time, but the way that they nail the, the cliches in that movie is too good. And, and I had a music teacher, a big mentor for me, David Newsom. He was my teacher when I was in college. He would reference Spinal Tap so much and I hadn't seen it. And so that was my introduction to Spinal Tap. But now it's, you know, it's, it's just, that's, that's the one. Do you play any other instruments besides a banjo? You said you had some guitars. You play any brass instruments? You said no. keyboards and yep. strings. Keyboards and strings, percussion, and a lot of like virtual instruments on the computer. Not, not really any, any wind stuff, but yeah, I mean, I've got a, music studio that's full of instruments and i do you know a fair bit of music for like tv film and advertising and you know my solo stuff as well so i've I've got a i got a bunch of toys here at the house for sure have you utilized the foam on the walls in your studio to make terrestrials i have not used the foam on the studio but i have used some weird foam for saltwater patterns i have a a pattern that I tie, I go down to Puerto Rico every Christmas and I, I tie like a variation of the gurgler fly, which is, you know, the uh, popper. Mm-hmm. And I have some, some weird foam. It's not like the stuff that goes on the wall, but it's, it, it came from my music gear stash that I repurposed to tie some flies. So yeah, I got some of that going on. Very cool. I don't know if it's still there, but there's a place called the butterfly people. In, in San, old San Juan, and it's a cafe, and they sell mounted butterflies in these plexiglass boxes. Huh. I've got them in my other room, but I've got blue morphos and carn bird cool. wings from there. 
You walk yeah, in and there are just displays six feet tall of hundreds of butterflies. Cool. I don't know that spot, but man, I've had some epic DIY fishing in the lagoons, like, you know, half hour from, from San Juan where there's like no one else fishing and there's tarpon and snook and the tarpon, you know, get up to like 20, 30 pounds and you catch them on poppers. Oh, that is just so fun. I was down there with my tropical ecology class. There wasn't much time for fishing, unfortunately. We were all. Oh, you'll, under- have, you'll have to check it out. It's good. We went to the Bacardi factory. That was like the highlight when we weren't in the lab. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Priorities change as you get older. Um, so your band also does, you can like rent your band to teach you how to play. Yeah. You know, that was some sort of a pandemic kind of evolution of, of what we were doing. And you, you know, you could just jump on like a portal on our website and sign up for lessons. And a lot of that, you know, was made possible because we could do all this stuff remotely via zoom and we were playing concerts on zoom. Now, a lot of that has chilled out now that we're coming back to actually doing our thing and performing. But for a while we had that going on just just because we were, we were grounded, you know, we probably missed 150 shows over the last two years. And for a solid year, starting in March, 2020, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was just no gigs to be had. So we had to find other things to do. And that was, um, that was a good use of time and a way to make a little bit of money and also a cool way to connect with fans. Absolutely. Still waiting for things to get a little bit more back to normal. I don't know about a Super Bowl party this weekend if we're going to go. Yeah, it's trending the right way, but there there's still a little bit of ground to cover, still a little bit of uncertainty. I think that we're, you know, we're learning to deal with with every passing day and we've got live shows going on again and I think you know, we're we're feeling like we're able to do that in a relatively safe manner, which is the important part and safe for us, safe for the fans. And we're just pressing ahead. You know, we're trying to adapt and, and, and figure out the best way to keep the wheels on the bus. But I think when the warmer weather comes around, that's going to open a lot of doors and, and make it easier and make things more possible. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Now, you mentioned the bus. Do you travel at night or during the day? Travel at night on the tour bus. So we'll finish the show. Our crew will finish load out. And, you know, if we get off stage at 11, you know, it'll take them a few hours to load out and pack the trailer, load all our lights, all our gear. And, and then depending on how far we have to roll, you know, we could be on the road by 1, 2 a.m. And, and cover, you know, up to 500 miles if we're, if we're really going somewhere far away. But that's a typical schedule. You know, we, we play the show, pack up, roll at night ideally wake up in the destination where we're going to be. Um, and then, you know, then you can have a little bit of a life. You can take advantage of the daytime hours and, you know, you can get out and whether that's like go to a coffee shop and do some work or head out and explore, do some fishing, whatever, get some exercise, work on some music. That's sort of how things roll. And then once about 4 p.m. is usually when we have sound check, and then that really starts the workday for us. So around you know three o'clock, you're getting ready for that, and then you're you're busy until after the show ends. You got sound check, and then it's dinner, then it's production meeting, and then it's right into the show. Usually we play about two sets that last about three hours. So it's a it's a it's a long busy day once it gets rolling. So the thing when you're driving at night is you're missing all the scenery, 
all anglers, when we drive over a bridge, it's this. Yeah, You're exactly. looking down, like driving through the Jersey Turnpike, it's all these spatter dock tidal creeks and I don't yeah. like driving because I can't look out the windows. So yeah. It's in all the spots. I know, but, but that's just, you know, that's just kind of the way it, it works. And if we were a band of fishermen, maybe there would be different considerations, but, you know, getting to where we're going to be that it's been, cause you know, when you start touring as a band, you're in a van with a trailer and you sleep in a hotel, wake up, drive all day, show up just in time for sound check. And that, you know, that that's, that's taxing lifestyle, you know, now we've been able to make the move to a tour bus and we have a dedicated driver. We have a great crew of five or six people who travel with us when we play. So that allows us to, like I say, wake up where the next show is going to be. And, and that's, that's huge. You know, like I say that, that allows you to kind of have a life, see the local area, whatever it is you want to do. Do you have a pre-show ritual right before y'all go on um will we do what we call our power up where we you know we all put our hands in the middle and someone says a few words about what we're about to go try and do and that sort of gets us on the same page before that i definitely just try to get in the zone and center myself and do some like breathing exercises and and make sure that i'm as focused as i can possibly be as technically warmed up and loose as i could possibly be and then you know it's time to get out on the stage and just be present in the moment with my bandmates with the fans with the music and you never know what's going to happen on a given night with uh with a band like ours and that's one of the cool exciting parts about it do you wear leather pants I do not wear leather pants. What about the shoes? If you're up there for three hours, you got to wear something comfy. I'm wearing what I refer to as my dad's shoes. Yeah. I went, spent a long time looking for, for dad shoes. These are Skechers, slip-on memory foam. There you They're go. They're the lightest. I wear them all day in the house. There you go. Total dad shoes. There's no frills about them. My goodness. I wear Vans on stage. You got to get the ones that, who, who is it? Nate, um, Nate Carnes, maybe there's some guys out there that paint trout stuff on vans. Oh, really? I haven't seen that. I'll have to check that out. I, 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 I go black on black checkerboard. That's sort of been my, my go-to for years. Yes. I had the black and white ones and then I had red and check ones. There you go. And then for a while, vans were hard to get because of the squid game show. Oh, really? I didn't know about that. Oh, okay. I don't watch it, man. It's, that was disturbing. I heard, I heard that it was a little bit over the top, but I didn't know that that, that, that caused a rush on vans. They're timeless, man. They'll never go out of style. I think I remember I got stinky feet in them. That's why I wear flip-flops all summer anyway. There you go. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to the season where I don't have to wear dad shoes in the house. There's also a rule in my office. Is you can't be in here barefoot or with socks. There's just hooks everywhere. Uh, you can get caught up. And then when I trim these right now, all these little tails I'm trimming, there's flecks of glitter on everything in here. I bet. I, I would wear socks. It would just drag it around. I got a vacuum because as I go up the stairs, more things fall off me. So the stairs just have like flash. There's flash. Fly tying is a messy game. Yeah. yeah I'm going to vacuum the whole place today. And I'm tying up, I mean, hundreds of damselflies. So they're just bits and pieces of ostrich plume just everywhere in here. Yeah. I'm running low on, this is like my last good ostrich plume. 
That's awesome. I, got I love it. Eight or nine of them from Spawn last year. And I never thought I'd run through them all, but yeah. Good work. That's some high output fly tying. Yeah. These are huge ostrich plumes compared to, you know, like a fly shop ostrich plume. I'd get. Yeah. This yeah. thing is, is like Vegas showgirl. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. My damselfly catches everything. You would have seen that That's, if we went to four mile. Next time. Yeah. So take you how'd, up on you, that. how'd you get into doing your podcast? How long have you been a podcaster? Yeah, I, I've been doing it for a few years now. I'm I'm 23 episodes deep. You know, I just interview other musicians and I've worked with this company called Osiris Media for a few years and 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 we produce a lot of cool music related content and it's just a great outlet for me. You know, it's something that puts me in touch and, and helps me learn from other great musicians and helps tell their story more deeply to their fans, which is always a cool thing. And it's just sort of musician on musician, deep dive into everything that's behind a life in music. And it's just been, it's been something really cool for me inside the musician's brain is my podcast. And I've, I've, I've loved that different arm of my career here in recent years. It's been great. Yeah, I almost went into the music industry. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was supposed to go on tour with Dave Matthews in Oh one summer. And then in Oh three, I was offered to be the tour manager of the North Mississippi all-stars. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. I know those guys. No way. Okay. If you open up their live at Bonnaroo album, I'm right on the bottom staple. Okay. You see me in an orbit. No way. Very cool. Yeah. yeah I've, I've had some crazy things offered and passed up in my life. Like 20 something years ago, Orvis called and I'm like, Hey, we want you to go run the store in Jackson hole, we'll pay you to move out there. It was just bad timing. I was going to say that's, that could be a cool offer. Yeah. I got a job offer to teach in the Florida keys. It came with a house and a boat. Oh, whoa. Just didn't work out. I've been loving the Millhouse podcast. Have you checked that out? I have. There's a bunch I need to listen to. Yeah, Andy's oh, awesome. Yeah, I've checked out. I think I've listened to like all of those. And have you read Lords of the Fly? Not yet. The new new Monty Burke. Yeah, the new Monty Burke it's, about the scene in Homosassa. Oh, it's so yeah. juicy. So and the cool good. thing for Andy is he's down there with a lot of the people that he can interview in person, which is always That's more right. fun to do it than over Zoom because you actually know it's going to record at least hopefully. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been, I've enjoyed Millhouse. That's definitely fueled my saltwater interest here in recent years. Yeah. How often do you get down to Florida? Not that often. Like I said, I've got this trip coming up to the Bahamas, you know, and, and I'll fly through Florida on my way out there, but I've, I've, I've fished Homosassa for tarpon and I've fished in the keys, you know, done some, some cool stuff down there, but it's been a while. I gotta, I gotta make a, a trip back. You know, you hear all these anglers reminiscing about how it used to be, you know, 30, 40 years ago, but I've, I've seen some, I've had some great days out there and seen some really nice fish. You know, like any game, you get a lot better at it as you put in the time. And I haven't been down there a ton, but um, but it's um, it's definitely a cool place to explore for sure. Where are the some of the next destinations the band's playing? Well, we we have um, we have a, a handful of shows in the Midwest coming up, and then we're going to be out here in Colorado, and then making our way to the Pacific Northwest. So, I mean, we we're all over all the time, and the just. Spots. Oh yeah, for sure. Check out our, our schedule, you know, at the stringdusters.com and you'll see 
you'll see us making the rounds constantly. That's just what we do. Very cool. Where can we find you online besides the string dusters? You have your own social media. Where can they yeah. find your podcast? Yeah, you you can, you know, if you just search inside the musician's brain, you'll find me in all the the regular, the you know, all the um all the accessible spots and and on instagram you can find me trad plus t-r-a-d-p-l-u-s that's my my handle on instagram and you know or at string dusters that's the band but i've got you know if you're into banjo and 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 fishing that's pretty much what you'll see on my on my instagram feed and yeah you can find the string dusters online at thestringdusters.com and my website is chrispandolfi.com and there's a, a bunch of stuff on there as well so we're easy to find and like i said we're always making the rounds so you know we're, we're easy to find online and we're we're pretty easy to find in person as well if you are going to be playing a spot that's got good fishing do you want anybody to reach out and be like yo i'll take you out while you're coming through absolutely anytime i love that very cool all right well thank you for your time and we're yeah. definitely gonna go out and fish next time even for if you're sure. not in dc within like an hour somewhere i can try I'll- awesome i'll keep it in mind rob but yeah man thanks for having me on today i really enjoyed it awesome thanks thank you for joining us for the fly fishing consultant podcast for more information or to contact rob please go to www.robsnowwhite.com podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.